People think liver disease is associated with alcohol, and it's largely not. People listening to this would just be shocked at that stat, that it's the third leading cause of death. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Move over gut microbiome, because it's time to talk about the liver. It's a lot more powerful and important to our well-being than a lot of people think. We assume it's just affected by things like alcohol, but it supports our body in so many ways. It's actually the brain of our metabolic system. My guest today is Jack Amara, and he makes the liver so fun to talk about. He's the CEO and co-founder of Okrabio, which is revolutionizing the treatment of liver disease. We hear a lot about the gut microbiome, but Jack will tell you why it's time to think about the liver and the many elements of our lifestyle that it affects. We first got introduced when my mum was diagnosed with an autoimmune yeah. liver disease. She doesn't drink. She's insanely healthy. She's a really healthy weight. She exercises every day. So the fact that it hit her liver really surprised me because we really relate liver normally to alcohol or kind of excessive obesity. That story is so common, you know. So many people, we stigmatize the disease to a degree and it's very unfair for the... It, it's, it shouldn't be stigmatized in any way, but it's very common for non-alcohol related uh, drivers of disease. Alcoholic liver disease is actually a very minor portion of the overall liver disease spectrum. Yeah, so why are we not talking about this? Because when I actually looked at the stats, this is what shocked me. Okay, so most people with liver disease die between the ages of 18 to 65 years of age. Why do we not talk about this? I think, I mean, there's no obvious answer. But I do think to some degree, it comes back to the stigma that we've associated with liver disease as a society. We've sort of painted it as a, uh, a, a disease of excess, when in reality, it's very, very much not. I mean, it's interesting, because Gen Z are actually drinking less frequently than than other age groups. So I'm finding, you know, really fascinating. I think when we're stressed, many of us turn to alcohol. And, you know, myself included, even though I, you know, I'm a health advocate and I'm a nutritionist. You know, of course, if I'm stressed, I'll come in and be like, oh, maybe I'll have a glass of wine. But if we think about that, one, stress is already impacting our liver. Two, alcohol impacts our liver. So we're kind of like hitting our liver hard on that one day. So how bad is alcohol for the liver? Let's just actually figure this out. Look, I think it's more about um, consistency. The liver doesn't love. It does have this regenerative capacity. So... A regular glass of wine is probably a lot worse than a, a one-off or giving, giving your liver a breather to try and resuscitate itself and clear out the, the, the toxins is ideal case if I were your liver. <laughs> Speaking as your liver now. <laughs> but basically what happens is your, your liver metabolizes the alcohol and in doing so, it's, put, it's being just put under a little bit more stress than it typically would with, by ingesting or converting food into energy. So in that way, you're, it's just a bit of a stressor. And then a consistent stress, like the body, you know, like if, you're, if you are having a, a high stress job, you can think about how do I relieve this stress? Do I go do yoga or do I sort of just not do the job anymore? And you have to figure out which, which of those solutions works. Um, so in the same way, the liver kind of needs to figure out how do I de-stress myself if I'm going to be exposed to alcohol. Mm. And is it is this a true fact? It's not actually the alcohol that's 
as detrimental is that it's a byproduct, the alcohol dehydrogenase. I mean, I might have said that wrong. This is taking me back no, to No, you said right, yeah. The liver converts it to alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the challenge it has to break down. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is it's actually very ethnicity dependent. In the West, we tend to have a stronger uh, or a better ability to break down alcohol dehydrogenase, whereas in parts of Asia, that's less less the case. And that's where you see what's known as the this sort of red flush sometimes in for people who, who drink in, in Asia. One of the theories behind why that is, which is kind of interesting, and you know, these things are may or may not be true. It's hard to tell how these differential or these this evolution played out in different parts of the world. But is that in the 1700s, 1800s in the West, we used to add yeast to our water to try and detoxify it if you picked up some water from the local river, let's say. And what we were actually doing by detoxifying it that way was making it slightly alcoholic and thereby clearing out some of the toxins that were in it. Whereas in Asia, they often have just boiled the water, which is a much more simple solution, much more elegant solution, one would argue. But through hundreds of years of basically adding alcohol to our drinking water, we built up a very strong resilience to alcohol dehydrogenase. And that actually was, you know, over uh, a couple hundred years later now, we're, as a result, much more resilient to ingesting alcohol. Again, that that is one theory for why this. I love exists. that evolutionary theory. I think that's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that we basically just seem drunk the whole time. I mean, Slightly. living in 15th, 16th, 17th century UK must have been an inter- entertaining time to be hanging around for a variety of reasons. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Correct. Yes, yeah, not a good time to be an Irishman, but great time to be in yeah, the UK. How do, how, how do you deal with? not drinking very much and being Irish. <laughs> well, I didn't say I don't drink very much. I said I'm trying to work on treatments for liver disease. I, 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 this is a purely self-interested motive to try and cure my own, my brethren and my own uh, indulgences. I'm joking. That is a, a very hot take joke. I don't know. There maybe is there some there is some irony in an Irishman develop, building a company to try and solve liver disease. It wasn't necessarily by design, as I mentioned, uh, but it's it's uh, it's good, yeah. You know, we, we need better treatments for liver disease. And if I can be the spokesperson for that, I'd be very happy to. Well, you are. That's exactly what you are. And I think people listening to this would just be shocked at that stat, that it's the third leading cause of death, of premature death. And I think people just hearing that will be shocked because we hear of the, of the C word and we hear the cardiovascular disease and we hear of all of these topics spoken about a lot. But you've mentioned something earlier to me as well, is that our liver can regrow and regenerate itself, even if two-thirds are cut off. So then my question comes to my mind of, okay, well, if it can regrow and regenerate, even if it's lopped off, why are people still dying from this? I mean, it might sound like a really obvious question or kind of a stupid question to ask, but that does kind of make me think, what is it that's kind of still killing people in liver disease? It's not a silly question at all. It is, in some ways, the sort of crux of the question that scientists have been thinking about for centuries. If you go back even to the days of Prometheus and the Greeks, the story goes that Prometheus was left on a cliff and a bird would every day come and eat his liver and it would regrow. And so, you know, back in the Greek, Roman and Greek days, we knew that the liver had this ridiculous and interesting capacity to regrow itself, which is kind of fascinating history of, of liver disease. But the challenge, and oftentimes what we think about as a, as a scientific organization, is how do you, why does it lose that regenerative capacity? And that's largely what we think is driving liver disease, is that over time and with sort of quite significant um, disease, your liver 
loses the capacity to regenerate itself. And then you end up having inflammation that's caused and that's unsolved. And that inflammation leads to scarring and cirrhosis. And then that really drives later stage liver disease. So if we can figure out what are those regenerative factors, it might be a really interesting way to, to try and treat the disease and solve, solve the disease. I mean, absolutely. It's like the only organ I think that can do that. Could you imagine if your brain could do that? Like yeah. <laughs> all yeah. the brain cells that were lost, if you could just regenerate them, it would be fantastic. It would so be the fact amazing. that the liver like has the capacity to do that, it's such a powerhouse organ. And I love that you have literally said it is the metabolic house. Like it is, we think about the gut microbiome, right? We think about the brain and the gut connection. But talk to me about the liver. Like why is it so important and why do you reference it in that term? Because I don't think many people would have heard of that before. The liver is such a central node for so much of the body's whole overall system. You know, like, I mean, it produces 70% of the proteins that go around the body and are used for various functions. It It is the filter that enables your blood to, to be successful. It breaks down all of the food and converts it into ATP that we use to walk around. It's um, it's funny that it hasn't got as much love, I guess, as, as other organs. So so yeah, let's let's give the give the liver some love. It's like move over gut microbiome. The liver is trending in twenty twenty three. Well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> you know, we need we need better medicines. We need more people to be thinking and talking about this. And, and it it does play just a fascinating <laughs> role in so many different ways that uh, we should be giving it a bit more attention. I think. Well, I think something that will kind of leash onto people's ears here is when I talk about metabolism. Yes. Well, because the liver we all... is the brain of the metabolic engine. You know, that is its primary function in a lot of ways. And so tell me, like, how does it work with our metabolism? Why is it so important? Like, what does it actually do? And how can we enhance that? How can we kind of support our liver health to support our metabolism, basically? So essentially everything you eat, the your body's taking it and thinking, how do I ingest this and squeeze all of the nutrients out of it that I need to go and do my daily living? That, that in some ways is what's happening when you feel hunger and when you ultimately on a daily basis go, go through the, the satiation process. Um, but the, the liver is the organ that's responsible for going, okay, you put this in me, how do I pull out the things that are actually going to be useful for you to go and do your exercise or go walk the dog or go for a jog or whatever else you might be doing during your day? So, so the liver is the, the entity that finds the nutrients within the food that you eat, extracts them, and then converts them into what's called ATP, which you're going to go back to your early biology classes, basically what the body uses to, for energy. It also takes out some glucose. It stores that for when it's cold in the winter or when it's late at night and you need some, you want some more dreaming to be done, it'll release it at that point. So it has this sort of, it is sort of this engine that takes out the good stuff and saves it or uses it for whatever your body body needs to do. Um, so yeah, in, in that way, it very much is the engine of the metabolic system. Apart from alcohol, which I think people are going to link as kind of the detrimental side that's going to harm the liver, what are the other things that can harm our liver health? Because I think as soon as people think about metabolism, they're like, oh, well, maybe I should be doing things to prevent it. So what actually is damaging my liver? 
Thank you for listening so far. Now, I've been a customer of Arena Flowers for a very long time. So having them finally sponsor Live Well Be Well is utterly amazing. And I have a special discount code just for you guys. A big part of my self-care routine is self-love. And having flowers around my home, like you can see in the background if you're watching this on YouTube, is the perfect way to achieve that. Arena Flowers are the UK's number one ethical florist. All their packaging is free from single-use plastics. So if you're ready to put a smile on someone's face and positively impact the planet, use the discount code LWBW50 for 50% off your first three subscription boxes. Make your first order now by clicking the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. There's a lot of stuff you, that that isn't good for the liver, and that you can think about trying to change. Like uh, number one, and this is maybe sounds a little bit obvious, and a little bit counterintuitive, but it is obesity. It's not good. The liver feels like it's under pressure. You know, you got a lot of food to process. It's already probably clogged up a little bit as you've gotten more weight around the hips. It's also building up around the liver. That's maybe one thing people don't fully appreciate is is that as you build up love handles, your liver builds little mini love handles as well. And as your liver gets more and more love handles, it becomes increasingly difficult for it to do its basic daily function. And then that over time and excessively sort of helps or causes the liver to begin to break down and then ultimately need some some support in uh, in various ways. But things, that, things, other things that can be bad for it are, as I mentioned, uh, drug-induced liver injuries, a very common, common theme, not just recreational drugs, but regularly taking ibuprofen, regularly taking sort of your... Um, your standard uh, medication or other, even pre- prescribed medication. Cancelnomes have negative effects on, on the liver. Um, age is actually very bad for your liver. I know that's a weird thing to say, but uh, with time, you know, it, it it ultimately, like any engine, just begins to get clogged up and, and sort of beaten down. Um, and things that are really helpful for it, are these are also going to sound maybe a little bit obvious, but, but exercise is such a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal thing. And it really, it's like a rejuvenative, sort of function that gives helps you clear out some of the the crap that's stored in there and ultimately helps to resuscitate it to some extent. Um, chronic stress is not great for the liver. It feels it feels your psychological stress like a lot of your body does where we're sort of one interconnected organ. It's it, all of these things are are um, inter interrelated in a, in a large way. Uh, and yeah, there's a whole and, and even yeah, reg, having a better diet, getting the right sleep is good. Again, I'm kind of sounding like a little bit of a broken record now, but all of those core functions that keep your overall body healthy, your liver is being such a central node of your overall systemic health feels the pinch uh, when 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 misbehaving on any of those fronts. And doing those little things can really have a have a positive impact. So, like you mentioned a few things there, like excessive medication. So, I'm thinking many people listening to this maybe who are on SSRIs or are taking anti-inflammatories every day to support. Yeah their pain relief, what should these people be doing? Is there anything there that they should be more aware of? Obviously, pretty getting good sleep and trying to exercise, but is there anything there that kind of should be sitting front for and center for them to help impact their liver more in a in a preventative way? Uh, we're getting a lot more pres- precise and elegant with the medicines we're designing, and there's a lot more a lot less off-target concerns, and the liver appreciates that. But but either way, I think if you are on a, a high medication, it's even more pertinent that you think about exercise and think about a healthy diet and think about all of these things to to try and do everything you can to make sure maintain a a healthy liver function. And then I, I guess if you're 
if you're taking discretionary medications that you that you aren't certain are fully necessary, you haven't been prescribed by a medical professional, think about that in the context of it. Do I really need it, or is there is there another alternative? Uh, solution here for for the problem that I'm facing. And then that makes me think, well, what about supplements? Is there anything that you see, and I have seen some kind of headlines around green tea, because there's a lot of kind of, green tea is really good for your liver, and then actually no massive excessive load supplementation, it can be really toxic and detrimental. And I see, especially as nutritionists, so many headlines around, have this supplement or have this, it will boost X or Y. And actually, it could be in reverse, be doing... The opposite and be really detrimental. Yeah, I think like with everything in this life, moderation is the key. I, I do think there, there has been benefits, particularly for things like milk thistle, that have shown beneficial uh, medical effects for your, for your liver. There's been some real scientific evidence behind that. Also, green tea actually has some some decent evidence to support in moderation that it's it's good for you um, and helps to clear out the the crap. In in milk thistle, the the active ingredient is this thing called silymarin that seems to have uh, support reducing oxidative stress, which is healthy for the liver and has kind of an antioxidant um, effect, which is which is broadly a positive thing. There's a few other supplements that have had some initial scientific research done on them, things like turmeric have have some basic evidence to support them. But all of this evidence is, is, is uh, what's the word, like l- limited in validation. You know, there's, there's not necessarily been large scale clinical studies. Because you think about trying to run a clinical study on turmeric, you know, you'd have to have Thousands of people only tumor, you know, eat turmeric and kind of keep maintain a similar diet to the other thousand people who didn't eat turmeric, and then try and see over twenty years if that's actually improving your liver. So these, these kind of things are hard to say with conclusive evidence that this really does have a beneficial effect. But there's basic uh, scientific theses that seem that would seem valid to support their their use. But I think, as you rightly pointed out, it is all about moderation with with anything like that. Yeah, I think it's all about moderation because. There was a few um, episodes where people have actually died from taking green tea supplements because it became yeah. toxic to the liver. Yeah. And you read that and then you can you know, go online and you can get you know, the best liver-boosting supplement and you're like, oh, I'll buy that because I think it's doing good for my health. And actually it has the complete opposite effect. I think we have to like realise that it's still a, a sensitive organ. <laughs> yeah, it's a really sensitive organ. And like I said, it, it, the, 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 dam- the danger is that you do you over-index and then ultimately damage it and it loses that sort of healthy ability to regenerate. There's also, so, like if you know, you hear people, there are these sort of odd um, proposals for just drink salt water for a week and uh, eat a bunch of charcoal and stuff. Like I, I, I'd maybe stay a little bit away from you know, it ranges as a spectrum. Uh, and again, it's just so hard to prove or disprove the value of these types of interventions, given the, the way you would have to run a clinical trial, which makes it almost impossible to really conclusively say that these things are good. And generally, my thesis is the wackier sounding, the probably the more you should stay away from it. <laughs> Completely. I cannot agree more with that. Like the fact that you mentioned charcoal, people might have not heard of that trend but a few years ago it was massive and I remember every corner I was walking on there was like a charcoal latte or everyone's putting charcoal in their water and it was just becoming this insane trend and actually there was no evidence for it like I think it basically where it stems from is patients that are treated with drug overdoses when they're put into hospital it does bind to the drugs they have yeah. activated charcoal but that is within their stomach before it gets to the blood. And it's totally different with alcohol. It doesn't work in detoxifying the liver. I mean, it's a detoxifying organ itself. So it's like a lot of kind of misinformation there. So then everyone's trying to (laughs) 
buy a charcoal latte in the hope that it's going to detoxify them. But it's that word again. And I'm not sure how you found that, but is incredibly fatty. So I kind of always try and say something says detoxify, maybe um, speak to a health professional. I think that's wise words, wise words. Um, <laughs> I have I have seen it in toothpaste. And I know there's like, you know, again, it's like one of those things. Yeah, maybe they used it in Rome as a toothpaste alternative, but we do have great toothpaste these days. You know, you don't necessarily need to continue to use charcoal. Maybe it is a great solution, but... It tastes sure, horrible. Yeah, I'm sure folks have been, you know, the, the good folks at the toothpaste companies have probably spent millions of billions of dollars researching the optimal toothpaste <laughs> construct and probably they're probably onto something you know maybe charcoal did a good job 2000 years ago but i'm sure we've evolved our thinking as a species and i would be inclined to follow the follow the, the latest thinking but anyway that's just me you know each of their own uh, with these things <laughs> but i find it interesting about the milk thistle that takes me back to my youth i felt my like i used to pop a milk thistle big on milk thistle and i i i looked it up in more depth before joining because I had read some basic papers, but there is some pretty serious scientific literature that suggests it has a, a beneficial effect on, on a number of different liver-related diseases. So yeah, it seems to check out that one. The milk thistle reminds me of my younger days when I used to kind of have a big night out, which happens less frequently now. But when I did, I remember I used to wake up <laughs> and be maturing. like, oh, I'm maturing, I'm growing up. <laughs> I just can't hack a hangover. And I used to, you know, have a milk thistle and be like, all will be well. Um, but actually, I had no idea if that actually worked. So really interesting that it did, um, from what you're saying. So how should people be taking milk thistle? I mean, I feel like my my route to entry of that is not very scientific. Um, so what <laughs> what should people be doing? Well, I would echo a similar route in. My granny was a big believer <laughs> in milk thistle back in Ireland. And I'm, there's a lot of truth to old old themes like that. Um, I I would just say that like anything, it doesn't really excuse a heavy night of binging. <laughs> they're, they're, they're significantly unequal. <laughs> um, but I, I, and I, I think just uh, whatever is a pro, I, I don't have a specific on when or how, but regular-ish intake of milk thistle is probably broadly good for the liver. But yeah, again, uh, heavy binging is having, don't know if it quite balances out the heavy binging. It doesn't quite balance that out. I mean, it's interesting. One of the big things around what you've mentioned to me and one of the big factors of liver disease is obesity, right? And something that is absolutely cruising across all of our headlines at the moment is the new obesity drug. And I feel like it's completely captured the public. I mean, everyone seems to be talking about it. So even Elon Musk is tweeting about his experience with it. The more I read about it again this week, I then also saw that it's also being tested for Alzheimer's and even addiction treatment. So what are your thoughts surrounding this drug, this obesity drug, basically, and where do you think it's going to go? Is it too good to be true? I wanted to jump on in and take a moment to thank you for listening to the Live Well, Be Well show. It brings me so much joy to hear how stories on this podcast have helped you get the most out of life. And it's my mission to help even more people do the same. To achieve this, I need you to help me grow this show. So please share the link with a friend or maybe even drop it into the group chat. What a question. Lots to unpack there. <laughs> I guess maybe to start off, firstly, I think it's great we now have medicines for obesity. It is a huge risk factor for so many other diseases. You know, public health data has told us for decades now that doctors just telling their patients to 
eat less and move more doesn't uh, doesn't really do anything. You know, humans are humans, and and there are socioeconomic factors at play at times. There are complexities of individuals' personal circumstances. There are genetics at play. Oftentimes, there's a whole host of different things that contribute to obesity. And I think having having options for patients, right? I mean, having options for people is is a great place to be as a society. And then also normalizing that and and reimbursing it. And you know, as I said, it, it does contribute and is a risk factor for a lot of quite significantly more serious illnesses. Um, so I think that's a very positive thing. And it's a very positive shift as a society to start thinking about it in that way. Second thing is, like all 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 good things, there there does come um concerns and things to be to be careful of. The first is that it should only be used on label. I mean, I, I of, of course I'm gonna I'm gonna say that. I think there is a risk factor if you're taking it off label that there we don't fully know the long term consequences of taking these types of products. I think the big one that physicians tend to flag is this idea of oscillating between skinny and overweight and skinny and overweight and the consequences that that may have on your body long term. Maybe one of them being the sort of unusual facial sagging that you that you that you described. The other, um, maybe the more interesting forward-looking statement is that it is really the first of, of what is going to be a tsunami of innovation. I mean, you know, t- 10 years ago, people really weren't interested in, in backing obesity drugs. Because first of all, people didn't think payers would pay for them. So they were kind of going, there's maybe not, maybe not a big return on investment. And then there's also this, a little like where liver disease is today, there's this sort of societal stigma that, oh, this is self-inflicted and therefore... Uh, isn't a real illness, and therefore shouldn't be treated. Where, as as I just mentioned, that isn't necessarily the right way to think about these types of these types of things. And and what we're finding is that by improving your BMI or, or your body weight, you have all of these much broader s- systemic health effects. To, oh, so much so that we're even thinking about trialing this drug, which which again is an obesity drug, as a treatment for Alzheimer's, which is mad. But it shows you just how interconnected our body is, you know, and that's this whole idea of keeping your weight down can actually have way broader systemic effects. And that's a little bit how we think about the treatments we're developing for liver disease. If you have a healthier liver, that's a more efficient metabolic engine for your body. All of a sudden, over a longer period of time, you may have all of this more beneficial effects on neurodegenerative disease, cardiovascular disease, which is inherently linked to metabolic dysfunction. And then, yeah, just going back to that point on it's the first of many, like our, our, my, partner in crime or CSO was used to work for Nova Nordisk, who was one of the inventors of, uh, the manufacturer was Empic and one of the inventors of GLP-1. And he often talks about this idea that it's largely a nauseous effect. I mean, he's slightly, he's saying it in jest, but the idea that nausea helps just block satiation and therefore you eat less and you lose you lose weight. That's obviously not entirely true. There obviously is a, a metabolic function of the product, but uh, it, it isn't perfect for everyone. You know, there is a real nauseous effect that's getting slightly better with the next iterations of it, but it is very much there for, for people who take the products. And I think over time, that'll start to become less the case. And I actually was at a presentation where one of the founders was presenting a next generation obesity drug that not only helped you lose weight, but helped you build muscle as well. And how bizarre a world would that be if we're all in our 60s looking great and you know <laughs> doing push-ups <laughs> on the beach um that would be a good life a good way to good way to um think about our later our later years uh so anyway all that to say you know we're just at the tip of the iceberg and i think there'll be a lot of innovation in the space i think it's going to really profoundly change how we think about society and what and you know that's quite interesting i find it absolutely fascinating the only thing that i have as a caveat is 
how a single drug, no matter how promising it is, just can't also replace a supportive environment and mindset. I totally that agree. Also encourages I totally agree. healthy healthy choices, right? And it's this thing that I have had conversations with friends or patients recently who are like, oh, this is amazing. It's changed my life. But as soon as they come off it, they don't quite know what to do because they're well, that's still exactly in this right. yeah. same environment. And so it's that kind of, is it too quick, too soon? And actually it could have a reverse effect. Uh, absolutely. I think all of these things need to be prescribed within the context of a particular patient's journey and by a medical professional. And, and I just to reemphasize that point, I probably didn't call enough attention to it at the beginning, but there are side effects of taking. And we just don't know the longer term consequences of a really revolutionary product like this. And I think you're right. Like I think the whole idea of holistic treatments where it is a part of a treatment plan, it's one element of a broader sort of regime that helps you think about exercise, diet, it's sort of a, a companion uh, for, for an obesity treatment plan, which helps main, avoid that idea of what they're calling sort of yo-yoing between loss, loss of uh, body fat. That, that yo-yoing is a real concern to, to physicians around the world. And I think, yeah, as you said, thinking about it in the context of a broader treatment plan is important. Even my sister is in the same boat where she is like obsessed with this new product, but mm. uh, is also starting to, to see the side effects. And it's also quite cost, it's not, it's quite expensive as a product. It's expensive. So it's I think it's like that, two and a half thousand a month or something. Yeah. Which is, think, a, which is high right. to maintain. Which is huge. And I mean, it's not something that's going to be accessible to the vast majority of the public anyway, but it, it, it really needs to be prescribed in a way that's intentional and only for those who really need it at this point. Not only just, not just for, um, from a health economics argument, beyond, even beyond the individual experience, uh, so yeah, interesting, interesting times and very important to draw attention to the the um, pros and the cons. Yeah, I mean, I do find it completely fascinating, especially the fact that I even read around new addiction treatment that, that they feel like that could actually be one of the next things on the horizon, as well as Alzheimer's. And we thought about obesity, you know, diabetes 3 also being linked to Alzheimer's. So it's just so like interesting that this is even going to kind of start resonating in that sense. How does the liver if this is just a weird question, play a role in that. So it's a, it's a targeting a gene expressed in the liver that helps uh, the, the relationship between the liver and the, and the brain and the satiation sort of axis. So it's, uh, this is the idea that the liver produces 70% of your proteins that play a role across your body. So there's so many, if you're by treating the liver, by targeting a specific protein or specific uh, gene that's expressed in the liver, you can have this really broad, wide-ranging sort of systemic effect, which people don't fully appreciate, I, I don't think. Well, no, and I feel like I'm, I mean, I'm not, I feel like I'm kind of quite clued up on the health side of things. I would never have guessed that. I would never have thought. And I guess this brings us back to like the gut microbiome, like move to the side, because it can actually have a direct impact on your mental health. I mean, that I do find quite fascinating. I, I should caveat, we haven't seen the results of the Alzheimer's trial yet, but just the fact that Novo Nordisk is willing to foot the bill of a very expensive trial, like an Alzheimer's trial for a product that's drugging something in the liver is, is, a, is a major. And just, I think it just underscores that point of the interconnectivity between all of our organs and a benefit to the liver or a benefit to your BMI can have all of this effect on your uh, mm. systemic being. I think we kind of knew this intuitively, but it's interesting to now see it in a, in a really data-driven way. Completely. And where do you think it will lead us in the next five years? Do you think it will lead to completely revolutionizing the healthcare system? Do you think, it will, do you think we'll start looking at other organs and how we can target them and impact on this side? What's your kind of thoughts on the future of this? I think we'll get more and more 
segmented, like the products that we now you mentioned there's a whole host of different branded products that are broadly doing the same thing. I think the science will lead us to more specific products targeted to more specific subtypes of obesity or subtypes of patient groups that are better suited to their needs and ultimately remove and reduce a lot of the, the current side effects and sort of get more targeted and more tailored as a as a as a class of drugs but i think i think it will become its own sort of wave of new products looking at metabolic function and that's where the liver is sort of the central node yeah completely well i think but what you're doing and this takes me really nicely onto the next topic is the future developments i think really also lay hand in hand with ai and for anyone who's about to go oh maybe this isn't my kind of thing you know I'm obsessed with ChatGPT, and I think it's become my daily companion. But many people are terrified of the quick developments AI is making. I caveat that with where you are in therapeutics and what you're doing. I think it gives us a lot of hope for the future with our healthcare system. Um, can you talk a little bit about this and how actually AI can be a real positive benefit going forward within therapeutics and our healthcare systems and how it could actually have a huge impact on, on treatments and drugs. Show yourself some love and buy some arena flowers today. I have made them a vital part of my own self-care routine. So don't wait for someone else to give you that. Use the code LWBW50 to get 50% off your first three subscription boxes. Yeah, well, I'll start off maybe with the latter, which isn't necessarily my domain of expertise, but just I, I do think it's a really interesting comment around how AI, and even potentially things like ChatGPT, will impact primary care for, for patients. Like you, you think about how much time your average physician spends on administrative work, like tr tracking specific a patient, it's all even done paper based, you know, like submitting files and reports and so much very labor intensive administrative overhead to the treatment of people, which is what a physician is trained to do. Like Ch ChatGPT has really made it clear to the world how elegant and easy to use these types of tools are in a way that ideally it sort of supercharges your highly trained professional, the physician, and allows them to spend more time treating patients and less time treating paperwork, which I think would be a really positive, positive thing. I, I think in it's all, I mean, my, I love it as well, because it kind of makes you as it kind of supercharges you as a as an individual and in that you can go into a room and have get a, the basic lowdown on a specific topic in rapid time and sort of become kids become a lot smarter, a lot faster. And we're, I'm seeing within the organization from an operations perspective, but from a therapeutics perspective, where we're deploying tools like AI in a very intentional way, is to discovering new biology. So our company does a lot of big data research around liver and liver disease and liver biology. We use new technologies, which I'm not sure how familiar your, your listeners will be, called genomic single cell sequencing, spatial sequencing. These are, these are tools that make a lot of noise in the scientific community, but maybe less so in the general public. And basically what they allow you to do is sort of zoom in on tissues, diseased and healthy tissues, and try and get to the root of what, what is being expressed at a cellular, at a DNA level. What is your DNA doing in healthy state versus a diseased state? And how, how can we kind of study those subtle changes to better understand the biology of disease? What's driving disease? And how can we ultimately 
get to better treatments for, for disease. So what we've done as a business is really build this incredible rich library of, of genomic data on liver disease progression mapped to clinical data on how this presents at a, at a clinical level and, and all of the imaging and histology uh, data in between to try and come up with new ideas around how would we better treat liver disease and really use AI to mine all that data and feed us new conclusions on, ooh, this, we should try this in the lab. This gene seems to be really, seems really contributing to the disease. Or, ooh, you know, have you thought about, gives, gives us a, a better way to kind of in a systematic fashion study disease process and come up with better ways to, to ultimately treat it. And I think that is really going to drive uh, a number of different areas of therapeutic development. In our domain, we're in the sort of biology area, but people have used AI in a very uh, significant and successful way in designing the actual drug itself, so manufacturing and helping to optimize the, the, the design of the drug, right through to actually running clinical trials in a much more efficient way. Because we do run clinical trials, you know, it hasn't really changed in 40, 50 years and new tools and technologies to better identify patients, make sure the right patients get the right drug, make sure we're tracking and monitoring how the patient is responding to the drug in a much more elegant way and forcing them back into a hospital to get a biopsy and all of those sort of standard practices that are a little bit rudimentary and can be augmented and enhanced with, with technology. I think there's a whole host of different use cases where AI will have a really positive effect on the world. And it's already doing so, but it will, will be even more more impactful. I, I obviously I'm, I'm not the right guy to comment on this more um, existential threat of, of the technology, but I think when deployed in a controlled and targeted fashion, like a lot of technologies, they ultimately have a broadly positive impact uh, as long as we're careful about the, um, the side effects. I think one last comment is started going a little bit in the philosophical direction. Uh, an interesting way to think about regulation for AI, which even the CEO of OpenAI is calling for, which is kind of a, uh, an interesting theme, is a little bit like how medicines are regulated. We, we have very controlled environments where we can test them. You have to be certified and regulated to, to discover and test and, and, and for new, new products. Then once you have something you think is interesting, in order to move it into human testing, you have a very stringent regulatory process which is a scientifically driven. You have to have regular interactions with, with regulatory agencies to get to a point where everyone's comfortable that this potential product is, going to, is ready to be released in a very controlled fashion on, into society. And then over the course of three different phases of testing, you ultimately are allowed to commercialize and market it in a larger way. And I mean, that is an interesting blueprint, the one that came up in the 50s, 60s, as a way to get comfortable with releasing new medical technology into the, into the world. And it could be considered a, a way to, to do so for, some, for something as uh, potentially uh, concerning as, as, as open AI or these sort of more chat GPT-like uh, technologies. Controlled, regulated, and sort of let out as we, as we get comfortable with them. I mean, I think that is what is scaring people. So the fact that AI is just going quicker maybe than the human brain can do. And I think the fact of how it's just jumped in the last year, I think that's where people become quite scared because it is the unknown. Um, and for so many areas, it's, you know, it's fantastic. It's got incredible benefits. Just from what you've mentioned, okay, even how Acrobiome are doing and all these new drug discoveries and the potential of how it could revolutionize our systems from biotech to literally patient care. Like, two extreme ends of the healthcare system, but how it can have such a dramatic impact can be fascinating. But again, on the other side, there's all of these other factors that people, I think, are so terrified. So I think, you know, that is 
the leg like the the legislation of what it has to go through like a medical study is actually a really fascinating way to look at it but then do you think it would slow it down too dramatically that we actually wouldn't get anywhere because if i look about how the, how it's how drugs are regulated and how long it takes yeah. to get through yeah look i, I think <laughs> we could be waiting balance. 20 years well that's that's the balance you know like this, this is the these are decisions as a society we need to make right what we, we've made we've been intentional about what we think we're comfortable with from a from a pharmaceutical products regulatory perspective and largely i think you know over time you kind of, i mean ideally everything will be faster and more better resource to speed things up but uh you know it, we are dealing with people's lives so there is a necessary regulatory step to be comfortable with the types of products that are let out into the world because you, there are bad actors and we need to prevent against that so uh, and in the same way i think we could think about innovative regulatory strategies for things like ai i'm not a regulatory expert i'm just kind of giving my two cents on the topic but uh but you know there there are ways to get creative about this and there, but there isn't a lot of time i think that's the challenge that governments face at the moment is they need to yeah. sort of act quickly uh, and come up with some proposed strategies and then work with the innovators i think that's maybe one of the challenges um regulatory agents face it's hard to get in a room and get productive with with the with the innovators and i think that was where covid was sort of provided a blueprint to a degree where there was this very hand in glove collaborative process like if you listen to moderna talk about their experience of bringing the vaccine to market it's it's really fascinating and just huge speed and collaborative and and um sort of effective ways to to regulate and get things to the people who need them as quickly as possible and i think maybe there's a blueprint there of a not so traditionally slow regulatory body but something that's a bit more hand in hand in hand with the with the folks and i think the the innovators are very much in in the mind to do so because they're aware that this is accelerating potentially in a way that even they were surprised by so it's um interesting times it's really interesting i'm going to ask you a question a bit later for my apple subscribers around what keeps you up at night on ai so okay. we're going to come back to that one we have quite a few questions that have come in from our audience um surrounding liver and there's a lot that we haven't touched on and i want to just ask one one of the many questions that came in from sheree and she asked how can we correct fatty liver disease? And I think that is something that is on many people's minds. Um, quite, my father's got fatty liver disease. Um, actually, quite a few people that um, I work with have fatty liver disease. And so it seems to be really rising. And I think a lot of people are concerned around this on their liver health. So what's your thoughts surrounding fatty liver disease and what can people do as preventative measures or even, you know, to support them during this stage? Unfortunately, there isn't any approved medical products at this point. There's a lot of innovation ongoing in the background, and there's some really promising early early studies. A, a company called Madrigal had a really promising recent readout that's a great boost to the field, and hopefully that will start to catalyze more investment and more success for patients who are suffering from fatty liver disease. I, I think, unfortunately, right now, a lot of the medical advice is is exercise and being mindful of what you ingest and, and diet and working with a dietitian or a nutritionist to make sure that the diet plan that you put together does support the the, the disease progression and the stage of which it's at. Um, but the other thing that just a lot of people don't think about and it, it, it is a real benefit, particularly to living in places like the UK or the US or Europe, is the access to clinical trials. There's a lot of companies with very elegant sort of potential solutions that are thinking through um sort of ways to get them to patients and and, and you can look it up at, at clinicaltrials.gov it has a list of all of the available companies and you can read all the research and why they why they think they're they're promising and, and see if you can sign up for some 
clinical studies to try and bring new medicines and hopefully have a have a positive impact on the way. Gosh, and there's such a good thing that people just don't think about. No, I mean, people don't. Yeah. Actually, if you are suffering, to to go onto clinical trials is is you can be one of the first people to actually access some healthcare that could that could be really beneficial, um, as well as obviously from a nutritionist's point of view, changing your diet or or seeing someone who can give you the right advice rather exactly. than googling. Yeah, don't Google. Go to the professionals that they've done their homework. That GPT is not qualified to answer your medical questions. Jack, thank you so much for coming on to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for your time and love your liver, people. Give that liver some love. That's the message of today's show. Thanks, Jack. What a fascinating conversation that was. I've just recorded a bonus question with Jack about practical tips to take care of your liver health. And I find out what keeps Jack awake at night when it comes to the rise of AI in our society. You can listen to the bonus episode as well as additional content from me when you sign up for a subscription using Apple Podcasts. Start your free trial of Live Well, Be Well now. One last thing. I've created something just for you. It's a 30-day online course to give your well-being journey that extra boost. And it's totally free. Go to sarahandmacklin.com to download it now. There's a link in the description. And I'll see you on the next episode.